WHUPLP Hillsboro. My name is Gilbert Neal, and this is D-Sides, Orphans, and Oddities, a radio show that goes from 1965 to 1980 and tells the stories, hopefully connects some of the songs that you thought were not related to each other, and just generally a whoop-de-doo good time for everyone. Um... Tonight's show is about Elvis Presley, or specifically, what happened when Elvis died. Because when Elvis died, before he died, you had a couple of people who could make a living sort of pretending that they were him. Sort of like you could make a living pretending you were the Beatles, sort of the same thing. But whereas... The Beatles influenced entire subgenres of music, never stayed in one place. I think that Elvis's fans and the people who tried to become like Elvis were basically making fun of him. They may have loved him. Oh, someone's calling me to tell me to shut up. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that right now. I will eventually. But I think that people were making fun of Elvis. I don't think that they were paying tribute to his music or anything like that. I think that they were mimicking an affect. They were dyeing their hair black. Some of them had sideburns. Some of them had uh, DAs. Some of them, uh, I don't know, crazy black bouffants. Um, Some of them had space-like costumes with the big collars that Elvis preferred in the 70s. Some of them put on a white suit with a red shirt to pretend that they were Elvis from the late 60s. Some of them put on leather um, body suits like the Elvis of the 50s and the 60s. I've been listening to a lot of Elvis lately, uh, particularly the 70s, because I'm trying to separate the legend he was from the music that he produced. And I have to say that listening to Elvis's discography without being influenced by his work in the 50s and the uh, 60s. It sort of reminds me of, um, I would say, 10CC. It reminds me of Ted Nugent. And I'm, let me explain. Um, it reminds me of Aretha Franklin of that time because Elvis recorded an awful lot of clunkers in the 70s. But he also recorded some transcendent music, which I really, really like. I've played a few of those songs on the station. And I'm going to be playing some of his awful stuff from the 60s tonight. But mostly I'm going to be focused on um, tribute songs. Um, People who did not know Elvis, who just saw him as that person who could be very easily imitated. Um, The first Elvis impersonator I ever saw was Andy Kaufman who did it on Saturday Night Live. And it was amazing because it had never occurred to me that someone should be so good at pretending that they were someone else. Um, That was so, that Elvis was so transcendent that to see somebody basically using all their talent to create it exactly. I mean, since then it's a cottage industry and you can make a lot of money and you could find a lot of things to do if you're an Elvis impersonator. Not so much a Beatles impersonator. Um, 
but nobody's a Bob Seger impersonator. Um, very few people are um, Connie Francis impersonators or Bill Haley impersonators. There's just so many people impersonating Elvis and uh, trying to ape that, 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 that whole zeitgeist for you um, before you go to the buffet. But um, I'm going to talk more about Elvis. I, I brought his, um, his, the seminal uh, biography of his by uh, Peter Goralnik. Um The second part of his two-volume series is called The Unmaking of Elvis Presley. And I'm going to be reading some of the stuff from that. Um, but first, let me play you some of the absolute uh, garbage that uh, came with the wake of the uh, loss of the king on his toilet that amazing day when he could not make stool. Elvis was the biggest thing Man, this man knew how to sing Elvis brought so much happiness Into our hearts from the very start Elvis shake, rattle and roll From his head down to his toes Yes, man, Elvis made lots of dough For his shake, rattle and roll Elvis had a lot of fans when he sang, everyone gave him a hand For him and his band, everyone loved this man Elvis made a lot of movies and songs They live on for everyone Elvis was the biggest thing Man, this man knew how to sing Yes, Elvis We loved him with all of our hearts That's why it is so hard to know That Elvis had to part Elvis, we love you happiness you gave us over the years that's why we are now all in tears Elvis was the biggest thing oh man this man Elvis knew how to sing Yeah. 
Dear Evis, hello and how are you? We know wherever you are that you are singing in a choir of angels sitting on your flaming star. Just a country boy. Conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mind and open up your heart and maybe satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music. Dig to the summer breeze. It's a groove and I can show you how to use it. To come along with me and put your mind at ease. Hey, a little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me A little more bite, a little less bark A little less bite, a little more spark Set your mouth and open up your heart And baby, satisfy me Satisfy me, baby Come on, baby, I'm tired of talking Grab your coat and let's start walking Come on, come on Come on, come on Come on, come on Don't procrastinate, don't articulate, girls getting late, you just sit wait around. Ah! A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A 
little more fight, a little less spark, a little less fight, a little more spark. Shut your mouth and open up your heart, baby. Satisfy me, satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me, satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me, satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me, girl. Satisfy me, satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me, baby. Well, she's a earthquaking, hip-shaking, soul-breaking, love-making machine. Hey. She's a mass-talking, smooth-talking, slow-walking cat. You know what I mean? Hey, hey, hey. She wraps those arms around you like a grizzly bear. She'll kiss you every 15 minutes and let you up for air Cause she's an earthquake, hip-shaking, soul-breaking, love-making machine Hey, all right! Cause she's a wild-moving, smooth-grooving, pot-tricking, love-making machine She's a real freezing, rough squeezing, a hell teasing cat. You know what I mean? Hey, hey, hey. She love you leaning like it, sweet as she can be. But she'll make you blow your mind before you count to one, two, three. Cause she's a earthquake, hip shaking, soul breaking, love making machine. Hey, hey. Well, she's an earthquake and hip shaking, soul breaking, love making machine. Well, she's an earthquake and hip shaking, soul breaking, love making machine. Ah, oh, sing that crap. Um, <clears throat> we started off that set with uh, John Townsend. Elvis was the biggest. And he was, you know, towards the end there. Then a song poem. I can't find uh, the name of the woman who sang it. <clears throat> but it was about Elvis. Elvis yoga. Elvis sang El- yoga is as yoga does. Um, from one of his crazy, crazy, dumb movies of the 60s. Letter to Elvis by Fern Jenkins. A Little Less Conversation. That was a song that got remixed when... Um, they were trying to market him like the Beatles had been marketed. <clears throat> Apple Records knows its audience, but Elvis's audience is a little less defined. But um, that was the original version of A Little Less Conversation. And then She's a Machine, continuing Elvis's constant theme of um, training women like objects. This is Gilbert Neal, and this is D-Sides, Orphans and Oddities, um, doing a show about Elvis Presley and... Um, some of the garbage that got recorded in tribute to Elvis. There were a lot of, how you say, uh, song poems that I've played on my radio uh, show. But in um, in the wake of Elvis's death, there was an album released which compiled some of these. I'm not going to say the best or the worst because I'm sure that uh, neither one is accurate. But... Um, 
the the album is called Gone But Not Forgotten, and I and I just found this, and um, I'm going to play some stuff from it. I just played some stuff from it, and I'm going to play some more. Um, and you may notice if you're really paying attention that some of the backing tracks are the same for some of the other songs, and this is a common theme when you send lyrics in to have them recorded by alleged professional musicians sent back to you and perhaps made as made uh, made a hit or perhaps played for some sort of music mogul chomping his cigar and saying you know that song forever in our hearts i love that song give me more of that jim ward stuff <clears throat> that never happened but when you're reading the back of a magazine at night and dreams of music fame are going through your brain, then you say, hey, Mabel, I got that poem that I wrote about Elvis. Let's just send it in and $50 and see what happens. And then they send it back to you. The funny thing is, and I can't, and, and I can't get over this, is that when people sent in their poems to have them made into songs, the people who made this stuff never intended for anyone else to ever hear it. In other words, that song I played, Letter to Elvis, um, a woman named Jay Pauly sang it, and Fern Jenkins wrote the lyrics. Um, the chances are very good that Fern Jenkins never heard the other songs that were written by these same people and recorded, they just took the same backing tracks and just threw new vocals or a new melody onto it or um, uh, a new singer. In the case of uh, Pinch Me, which was a song that I played here a couple times. And it, it is funny, in the, na the age of the internet, I can't, I, I can't help but wonder how many people who are like 70 or 80 years old just sitting in their, um, in their uh, home actually hear one of their songs with different lyrics and the same backing and think, oh my God, what the heck happened? But the chances are pretty good that the people who made these songs are gone anyway. So do you know what I mean? You see how strange that, that would be? It, it, just weird. But that was before um, the internets and whatnot. So listen, January 75 to January 76, a small snippet from the Goralnik book about uh, Elvis Presley. <clears throat> and this is uh, in, Norfolk, in Norfolk, Virginia. On the next night, the verbal shenanigans of live performance got out of hand. Elvis had been riding Kathy Westmoreland for, more, for most of the tour, picking up pretty much where he had left off on the last in Cleveland, Kathy registered the words with which she heard him introduce her. He said, she will take affection from anybody, any place, any time. In fact, she gets it from the whole band. In stunned disbelief and in Nassau, she heard him repeat the same message, adding only, I mean affection, you fool. This time she was not just stunned, she was angry. He might have had his own problems. He might not like who she was dating. She was an ex-girlfriend of his. But he had no right to treat her like this. After the show in Nassau, I grabbed the nearest bodyguard and said, get the word to him 
Tell Elvis to stop doing this to me. Tell him I've had it. Evidently, that was the wrong message because he started in on her again at the matinee performance in Norfolk, Virginia. This time, she pointed her finger at him and said, you had better stop this. And he broke off and gave her a kiss. But when Tom Diskins spoke to Elvis again, just as he was about to go on stage for the evening performance, he was the uh, comedian before, his reaction was predictably, if inscrutably, contrary. Early in the show, according to a UPI account, he announced that he smelled green peppers and onions and that his backup singers, the Sweet Inspirations, had probably been eating catfish. It was the kind of incidental off-the-wall remark that under ordinary circumstances might have passed unnoticed, but now with everyone aware of Kathy's problem and fearful that they were going to somehow rub off, Estelle Brown hung her head in embarrassment and he lit into all of the backup singers, declaring, Estelle, sweet inspirations, stamps, if you don't look up, I'm going to kick your ass. So you see, wealth and fame are boring. Creativity is, or excuse me, um, music business and fame, it's boring. You get tired of being able to control people. And you just keep doing it because it's the only drug that you know, aside from all the drugs that he took. So, it's kind of funny how people saw him as this sort of gall. And yet, he was just a guy who took a lot of drugs sang some very, very, very good songs, very, very well by some outstanding songwriters. And the explosion that he had created was so big that it blew him into 1976. And it didn't stop. Until it stopped. gather around listen to that bongo sound grab the first one in your reach now we're gonna shake the beach yeah, yeah, yeah. do the clam do the clam grab your barefoot baby by the hand turn and tease hug and squeeze take right in and do your heart to spin on the outside looking in moon ain't gonna last all night well let's work up an appetite do the clam do the clam grab your barefoot baby by the hand turn and tease hug and squeeze dig right in and do the clam
I'll tell you what, you get rid of the guys you're with, and I'll meet you later on, okay? Hey, <laughs> all right, knock it off, buddy. Oh, don't get so upset. He's only kidding. Sure, I was just kidding. Go ahead, sing. It's a little thing for our friends on Fraternity Row. Hail to thee, old Ivy League. Pause in Ivy League. The rah-rah boys are sitting round the tables tonight. The rah-rah boys have lots of plans in view. They're gonna have panty raids and make their own lemonade. They'll live it up just like the big boys do. Those sons of the rich. <laughs> Boy, he killed me. I think he's smooth. He's sexy. Yeah. The rah-rah boys will go to bed so early tonight. Before exams, they need a lot of rest. They gotta make good for dad. They gotta make good so bad. They'll even pay someone to take that test. Man, he's funny like a case of traveling muffs. Boys in bed, I believe. Can they flunk? They're so full of funk. They're pausing, I believe. The rah-rah boys are being groomed for business someday. For better things to college they were sent. And you can bet they'll be the head of the company as long as dear old dad is president. They give me a rash That poison I believe So let it be told I won't touch them with a ten-foot pole That poison I believe Oh, me talk? Okay, I will. Uh, we started that one with Do the Clam. Hey, here's a little trivia for you. The song Do the Clam was co-written by the woman who played Ed Wood's wife in Glenn or Glenda. So go see that. And then look at the woman who's playing Ed Wood's wife and say, hey, she co-wrote Do the Clam. Yeah, she did. Uh, just a little bit, a long, ponderous version uh, off of uh, something that Elvis did in the 70s. Uh, Elvis and his boss by uh, The Residents, one of my favorite groups. And uh, I like the cacophony. I like the, the way that it all just falls apart at the end, like you're in some... Very, very, very strange version of Viva Las Vegas. It's just, I love it. Um, to Our King, which is off of that album that I mentioned before, that uh, Elvis song poem tribute album that no one is playing in the world, except for yours truly. <laughs> and then Poison Ivy League, which is funny because he's making fun of the college guys. It's funny. 
Felton Jarvis was Elvis's producer for almost 20 years. He died in January of 81. He once told the following story to a friend of his and of Elvis's, who asked that it not be directly attributed. A year and a half before Elvis died, in February 76, he recorded, for the last time, enough songs for an album of completely fresh material. RCA had been unable to get him into the studio, and they had finally set up a studio in his living room at Graceland. They cut 12 songs in eight days, and though Elvis never wrote his own material, he frequently recorded songs that were indicative of his state of mind. Some of the songs recorded in those sessions were Hurt, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, The Bitter They Are, The Harder They Fall, and Solitaire, you know the song Solitaire that Neil Sedeca Sedeca wrote and recorded with the guys from 10CC, I digress, which Elvis seemed fixated on and which tells the story of a lonely existence. He also recorded Danny Boy, his mother's favorite song, at his father's behest, which he had been meaning to record for a long time. On the last night, Felton Jarvis and Elvis walked outside and stood on the Graceland lawn. Elvis had said, I'm so tired. You need some rest, Jarvis had agreed. That's not what I mean, Elvis had said. He means, I mean, I'm just so tired of being Elvis Presley. So, you have everything you want, all the money you could want, but not enough for Colonel 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 Tom's um, gambling addiction. Not enough to buy watches for all your friends, uh, or cars, or coats, or apartments, or ski trips. So you got to keep going. Kind of like Jerry Garcia had to keep going. He didn't want to do what he was doing. He just wanted to go jam with his friends, but he, he had to keep it going. Elvis had to keep it going. Oh, Elvis, 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 Elvis. Oh, another story? Okay. Uh, Linda Thompson lived with Elvis from 73 to 76. Elvis used to say, I'm really just a little baby. On stage, I might be the sex symbol or something, but when I close the door at night, I like reverting back to just being a child. Often we are little children together, talking in baby talk. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine like Chuck Berry doing it? Well, yeah, maybe not a good example. Can you imagine like uh, George Harrison doing baby talk? You know, with um, Patty Harrison? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Forget this. I saw Elvis as very much a victim of life, of his own fate, but he had grown so acclimated to his way of life, to staying up all night and sleeping all day, to the darting in and out of garbage routes and service elevators, that it had become a normal way of existence for him. But it bothered me a lot. And there was a time when I said, God, I'd like to whisk you up in my arms and take you away to the country. And he laughed and said, Well, what the hell for? And I said, to get you away from all this. And then he got mad and said, hey, it's my life, et cetera, et cetera. You see, people love controlling people. They just do. And aside from Elvis being a great singer, he liked controlling people. You can't not. But I'll never control you. This is the inspiring true story of an American boy born in a little town in Mississippi 25 years ago. This is the story of Elvis Presley, 
He laughed and he cried and he went to school like all other American children. And yet Elvis was divinely gifted by his maker. Inside him, there burned a bright light, the light of genius. And don't mistake it, for who else but a genius could enthrall and excite with a song and guitar? So many people all over the world. One day, as if guided by invisible hands, Elvis, who has been a truck driver, walked into a recording studio in Memphis, Tennessee. On this day, his fabulous story began. He made his first recording. Nobody bought this particular record. Nobody, that is, except Elvis, who paid for the recording himself. At first, it wasn't easy. His was still a strange voice, a new voice. But he made other recordings. Finally, he recorded Heartbreak Hotel. And this was the first of his unending stream of hits. Elvis was able to convey to others the emotions that welled up inside him. Some frowned, but they were few. Some scorned, but they were few. Some were made happy, and they were many. At the height of his career, even as he held the magic lamp of success in his hands, his country called him to serve. And so he put aside his guitar, picked up a rifle, and became Private Elvis Presley of the United States Army. The world wondered what kind of soldier Elvis would be. It didn't have long to wait, for he was a good soldier. And what a wonderful ambassador and representative of the American people he proved to be when he was sent overseas. Rightfully, his country is proud of him. And now, Elvis is back. Elvis is back to sing to America and to the world again. With open arms, we welcome him. With joyful hearts, we sing He's had me and 
know how to react to that because that might be the worst song in the <laughs> oh into space yes into space so uh if you're a, of a certain age you remember mon- that monday night when howard cosell announced that john lennon had died which was a big thing for me because i was a beatles fan but i was not an elvis fan so i don't remember how I found out that Elvis was dead, but I remember feeling that everyone was shocked because people thought he would live forever for some reason, for some strange reason. Before, you know, the cynicism of today and before we just had to find every detail and we could find every detail about people. Excuse me. It just never occurred to people that Elvis could die. Here's a story by Sean Nielsen. He sang tenor with Elvis. He said, after a concert when he was bad, and he was bad a lot toward the end, everybody on stage would basically look at each other and say, you know, where can we hide? (laughs) You felt bad for him. I always did my absolute best because I felt he got some of his motivation from where I was. 
and I always worked as hard as I could to give him energy and motivation. But there were times when I don't care what you did, there was no way to move him. There was only so much you could do, but even when we did a really bad show, the audience didn't care. He'd been there, and that's all they came to see. Essentially, many of them didn't even care if he sang. Basically, that was the problem. It didn't, that, that doesn't leave much room to be challenged. He could have weighed 250 or 300 pounds and hummed. He could lay down on the stage and fall asleep, and they'd still have thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen, which is true. Because sometimes he did lay down on stage and sometimes, and, and people just still loved him. After he died, I thought I should have seen it coming, but somehow you never thought he'd die. Somehow, in spite of everything you could see, you thought Elvis Presley was immortal, that he'd just go on forever. And this is a guy who was on stage with him. He saw him at his best and he saw him at his worst. And he said, you, you just can't imagine him, him dying. But die he did in the most unceremonious way. Because uh, as I'm to understand through this wonderful book by Dr. Gorelnik, or excuse me, by um, Peter Gorelnik, he's not a doctor. Um, the thing that killed Elvis was a combination of uh, speed and um, the uh, other stuff that slows you down. What are they, barbiturates? And it kept his uh, system from uh, functioning well to the point where his heart just couldn't take it. This is WHUPLP. This is Gilbert Neal. And this is D Sides Orphans and Oddities. And I'm doing a show about Elvis when he died. <clears throat> um, so I'm playing a lot of uh, garbage that was recorded in the wake of Elvis's uh, demise. Um, we started with something I don't know. Then uh, The King Without a Crown, sung by Matt Vincent. Uh, this is a song poem that someone sent in uh, lyrics for. Blue Suede Shoes, uh, another song uh, by Elvis that was interpreted by The Residents. Uh, the Residents did an album I greedily snapped up at the time called The King and I, which is nothing but Elvis songs, uh, sort of turned on their head. And uh, in between some of the songs, there is a narrator telling a story to kids about um, Elvis. Um, they never mention, I, do they mention it by name? I don't know. But they talk about Elvis specifically. You know, he loved his mama and this and that and the other thing. Um, uh, in hindsight, I, I don't really listen to the album that much. I don't really listen to the residents that much anymore. Just a couple of songs I, I played here. Um, another time I will do a, a show on them and uh, snake finger who does love my favorite, um, part of that song. If you, if you go back and listen to the blue suede shoes by the residents, I just love snake fingers stuff. And the, the second verse just doesn't make any musical sense, but for some, for some reason it does anyway. So here's more of that thing that I said that I was going to do and do more of that thing. Cue music too many breaks too long yeah. well, I saw Elvis Presley last night 
Buddy, this is Elvis Presley versus Bob Joyce. Yes, the pasture for Bob Joyce.
I'm going to do something you don't see much. People do facial comparisons. People do uh, body expressions, teeth um, teeth uh, comparison. But I'm going to do something you don't see. An age comparison. So this is Elvis. 1935, July 8th. So we're going to do 20, 20, take away 1935, equals 85. He would be 85 if he's living, but we all think he is. So he's living and he's 85, I'll go with. Okay, so he's 85 and he's living well and wealthy and great. Now let's go to Pastor Bob Joyce. What the heck, we see 82. But don't be discouraged. Click that thumbs up and subscribe because look at this. He that was 2017. He was 82. So 17, 18, 19, 20. That's three years. So 82 plus three would be 85. That's a coincidence that Bob Joyce. A coincidence. Bob Joyce is the same age as Elvis Presley. 2017. Bob Joyce was 82, was 82. So therefore, Bob Joyce is the same age as Elvis. If you like this comparison, or the age comparison, about Bob Joyce and Elvis, please thumbs up and let me know what you think in the comments below. Is Bob Joyce really Elvis? Let me know what your thoughts are if you think or if you don't think he is. 73s and have yourself a great day. Elvis, if you can hear me, there is something that I want to say. And I know I can speak for all of your fans, for I'm sure that we all feel the same way. You gave this world a change, something that was desperately needed. You took the chance at being different. Just to fulfill a want selfly pleaded You became our king We adored your every move you made We'd sacrifice anything we had to Just to be at a concert You were to play Just to be at a concert Your energy was always hotter than the sun. We mourn at your death, for it came too soon and too unexpected. Many of us never had the chance to live our dream of seeing you, our elected. But our hearts remain loyal to you, for we are all so sure. That never will there be another king For your reign and music shall long endure Yes, your reign and music shall long endure
They encircle him like a halo while he sleeps in his heavenly birth. He shall never walk alone again, for Jesus, thou art with him. Thou hast anointed him with oils, thou hast cleansed him free of sin. Elvis knew Jesus touched him, that he was a chosen one. So he journeyed to that mansion in the sky beyond the sun. Even though our king is gone, his memory lingers on. Every day we hear him in his music and his song. We'll sorely miss our beloved king, for he's better off by far. Now he tours in heaven and rides upon a star. We dearly loved our king of rock, but Jesus loved him more. That's why he took him home to rest on heaven's blissful shore. There's just no one to take his place, for he outshined the rest. He outshined the rest. He can sing in heaven now, where the audience are best. Our king is gone, but not forgotten, oh, because he made his mark sorry. on each and every one of us forever uh, in our hearts. I know. Rest in peace, dear Elvis, with our blessings, tried and true, like the world would miss the sunshine. That's the way we're missing you forever. Forever. In our hearts. All right, I'm going to take a break from this maudlin garbage. Um, May Borden Axton, resident of Henderson, Tennessee, wrote Elvis's first major hit, Heartbreak Hotel. She said, I felt like a mother to Elvis. I had known Gladys, his mother. And maybe that has to do with why I felt that way. In that last year, he was so sick. He was sick so much of the time. And in April, he was hospitalized and his daddy called me and asked, would I come to see him? Well, I got there, and Elvis was laying in the bed, and he looked so sick and awful, and he took my hand, and I sat on a chair next to the bed, and I never will forget what he said. He said, May, I've been everywhere, and I haven't seen anything. I've met a million people, and I have no friends. That's sad. That's sad. Elvis, kind of a sad life. You know, if you think about it, so don't think about it. All right, this is Gilbert Neal, D-Sides, Orphans, and Oddities on WHUP. Hey, do me a favor. Go to my website, which is gilbertneal.com. That's gilbertneal, N-E-A-L.com. We're uh, finally getting around to those uh, Google Analytic thingies, and I wanted to see if it worked. And I wanted to see you visit you. I'm looking at you. See if you visit my website to make it the powerhouse that I'm sure it's going to be after a couple of years. I've got a new album coming out in June or May. May. I've got a new album coming out in May, and I've got some things planned for that. Um, none of them are local performances. So we started that set with Gary Lewis and the Playboys with I Saw Elvis Presley Last Night from 1969. on. Old Friend by Bill Medley, who was in uh, The Righteous Brothers. Uh, the Residence again with Viva Las Vegas. Then Something I Have No Idea About. Then Letter to Elvis. And then Welcome Home Elvis. And Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. Listen, I'm tired of talking. And I'm tired of listening. So I will see you next week on D-Sides, Orphans, and Oddities on WHUP FM. <laughs>
She actually dated James Brown for two years when she was 
Well, she died when she was, I think, 27. Uh, she may have been a little older, but she was pretty young. Uh-huh. Um, but whatever the case, she, she dated James Brown, and I can't imagine that that would have been a relationship that didn't have, you know, a little fisticuffs, because, you know, James was not known as someone who 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 could handle the, the women folk. He was not a big... Um, he wasn't big on fidelity and things like that, but I don't know. Um, then she dated, uh, 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 excuse me, David Ruffin, The Temptations, that wonder. And last week I played a song by him, a solo song by him. But he was, you know, he was also somebody who was very abusive and smacked her upside the head with a with a bike helmet, things like that. And I'm sure that when she was younger, she probably learned that this is what relationships are like. Uh, I don't know, but. It seems to me that that she is um, a really tragic figure, and and mostly because of because she was somebody who was a singular presence in that world of um, of a male dominated. You know, you have Motown. We romanticize Motown, but you know that's no different than any other than any other um, you know musical zeitgeist. It's no different than Sun Records or anything like that. Um, and then when she teamed up with Marvin Gaye, I guess he took her on as sort of a sister figure. I, I, I like to think they didn't have a romantic relationship, but I like to think a lot of things. Um, so if you're ever interested, find out, you know, read a lot of, it, 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 find out about her life. You know, dig around a little bit about Tammy Terrell's life because she is somebody who's an unsung uh, beauty, talent, and just wonderful. She did one solo album, but it really wasn't a solo album. It was more a cobbling together of some tracks that she had done demos and things like that you know not very good but um anyway that's just my advice for the people out there if you want to try that well now, she definitely her songs with marvin gay they were a great um a great pair mm-hmm. really beautiful wonderful songs and even the video that they did of um <clears throat> uh ain't no mountain high enough they did a yeah. video of performance of course lip sync but the chemistry just seems so mm-hmm. natural and sweet and she just seems like a Seemed like a wonderful girl, and, and and I think more people should know about her. Anyway, I was trying to find out about this movie that was going to happen, and I'm not sure that it's going to, but maybe I'll learn about it after this show. But um, I'll tell you this. This is WHUP-FM 104.7. My name is Gilbert Neal, and today's show is about misogyny in popular music in the 60s and 70s. Now we're dipping into the 70s, but I'm going to go right to the late 70s when uh, disco uh, took hold of the American consciousness and shook it and stepped on its head, kicked it around a little bit.
air-conditioned cubicles and the carbon ribbon rides are spilling it out so clear either he's gonna have to stand and fight or take off out of here i tried to run away myself to run away and wrestle with my ego this, this flame you put here in this eskimo in this hitcher WHUP FM 104.7 worldwide WHUP FM dot org my name is Gilbert Neal this is D sides orphans and oddities I have my good friend Tara Romano with me today talking about misogyny and music in the 60s and 70s there was more of it in the 60s but 70s brought about the disco era and Tara go oh well you know, we did play that song, uh, More Than Women, by the Bee Gees. Now, I love that song, and I yeah, enjoyed I do the too. Bee Gees. Um, I do think, you know, there was definitely a lot of backlash to disco, and I do think there is some of that had to do with, you know, rock and roll up until that point, rock music. I mean, you had, you know, women singing, but that was sort of pop, and, like, rock music was still considered music made by men for men. And, um, and women were just there, empty vessels to, you know, like, do nothing more than listen to the music, scream at the Beatles, that kind of stuff. Right, the Supremes were the biggest mm-hmm. female act at that point. But, um... <clears throat> three girls standing up in uniform, dancing the same. And I enjoyed the Supremes, definitely, very much. Um, but I just sort of, like, the some of... Like, disco was... There was a lot of um, women who were singing disco. There were also a lot of um, people in the LGBT community mm-hmm. who were... Uh, being a disco as well and so i think and they're also it was you know, a lot of people of color and so i think that there was this backlash from like really because you would hear about like the stories about um these djs they would host you know you come out and these from these rock studio rock radio stations come out and smash disco records and that kind of stuff and you when you would see video from that time it is young white men who are all out there destroying disco records like you know and sort of almost like taking the stand like this is our domain and how dare disco which is made by you know a lot of people of color and women and people in the lgbt community like how dare they come and try and move in on our our um our arena we decide what we are the gatekeepers of music and we mm-hmm. don't like this music we probably don't like it because maybe who was making it but we don't like it and so we're going to have this very extreme reaction because really it's just it was just music that you didn't like whoop de do mm-hmm. you know there was no reason to like host I mean, well, how is that different from people who were mad at the Beatles for what they had said about being more popular than Jesus Christ and hosting, you know, things where they would um, burn the records and that kind of stuff? It was the same thing. Like, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. You'll live. Right. So, uh, In Cleveland, you know, the Cleveland um, <clears throat> Indians 
had that uh, record burning, the disco record burning, which if you look at the tapes now, it looks sort of like fascism. It looks <laughs> like the beginnings of a, a fascist movement. And uh, you're right about, you know, young, you know, white males in the business, you know, running and it it comes around. You know, mm-hmm. now we're experiencing something that's very familiar, very, very mm-hmm. similar to that mm-hmm. um, in a different realm. But again, mm-hmm. um, I won't go into the cognitive dissonance that I feel is present in this country mm-hmm. because there's a black president and because there very likely will be a woman president next, like it or not. So there's a lot of discomfort and I think it's manifesting itself in these fascist gatherings and things like that. But what you say about, uh, you know, LGBT is very apt because, you know, the B- the Bee Gees had had two careers before that. Right. One is they were very similar. They were like Beatles clones sort of mm-hmm. um, bridging on psychedelic stuff, very close to the kink sort of. And then after that, there was another early 70s revival with um, Run to Me and some mm-hmm. of those great singles and things like that. And then disco comes along. They were not necessarily known as a sexual group. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very well, asexual. Mm-hmm. They dressed like women with long hair and beards, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love, I, I'm a, as a musician, I listen to the craft of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I think it's just amazing. I could listen to that song over and over again. Um, and that album over and over again. But what you say is true. Um uh, and it's a, uh, and it's also a little frightening. We heard, um, we just heard Coyote by Joni Mitchell. Uh, I'm not sure why I throw that in there, except for the fact that it's about a one night stand. It's empowering, and Joni Mitchell was never somebody who was, never seemed like Carol King. She never seemed weak or, uh, how you say, uh, um, she would never seem to acquiesce to that sort of thing. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't well, know. Well, the only thing, and I do not know much about Joni Mitchell's personal relationships, but um, I do want to sort of. Makes say that people understand that it's not really a failing on you if you're in a re- abusive relationship. Like it's not because you're weak or um, or there's something that you're doing wrong. Like it just happens right. to be the situation that they're. And there's so many reasons that can keep somebody in an abusive situation. So I don't want like because you actually because then it also can act work against like somebody say, well, I can't believe you in an abusive relationship because you just seem like such a strong woman. Like that's, that really has nothing to do with anything. And uh-huh. um, it's the person who is being abusive chooses to do this. And then there's ways that, you know, there are people who um, are abusive, like they're manipulative. They don't just punch somebody and then think, oh, I'm so lucky this person stayed with me. Like they do a lot of things to keep that person with them. Mm. Um, there's a lot that's going on. So it's not necessarily that Carol King was weak um and she wanted to when she was writing about it in her memoir she wanted to make sure that people did understand like that's she felt it hard to write about but she wanted it to be out there to be so people understand like they could see you know somebody's been in this relationship they got out of it like they she wants to have that example up there but you don't want to put it out there that it's a failing on the part of the person who's being abused because it's not Mm. um did i do that well, I, no, it was just not very much. Did I much. do that? <laughs> All you did was when you said, like, Joni Mitchell seems like she's really strong and, you know, not weak like Carol King. And so, you know, I just wanted to clarify Well, that's, that. I don't think people would, I, 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 I wouldn't know if Carol King was weak or not. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that, that Joni Mitchell seems not to be 
um, in her art, mm-hmm. in her craft, doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be singing about those things or you know, whatever. Well, she definitely, I think, you know, Carol King came up at a time in the 50s when really that's what you wrote songs about, which was love, teenage love, especially teenage love. You know, like that's what you were writing songs about. Mm-hmm. Whereas Joni Mitchell came at a time when you really could be exploring a lot more themes in your music. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear her stuff uh, in when she was a teenager in Canada? Did you ever see anything like that? Um, I don't think so. If you look up on uh, the YouTube, you'll see that uh, when she was in her late teens, she, you know, she was Canadian and mm-hmm. she would sing on these traditional Canadian hayride shows. And mm-hmm. it was very strange. It was jarring <laughs> to see her, you know, knowing well, she had what, to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's, that's <laughs> true. In in Canada before that, I played a couple of songs by one of my favorite groups, ELO. We talked about ELO last week, evil woman. Uh, I stopped playing it in the middle because I figure you can hear evil woman anywhere you want to. So and you probably can hear it. And any number of stations on the way home. But before that, Shine a Little Love, which was on their um, Disco Very album from 1979. And the verse, the couplet, well, the, the, the little poem that I thought was interesting was, do you understand? Well, it's, it, it's, um, it's been a year now and it's getting so much better. You came home without a word, which I, I don't know what that means, but it seems to me that it's, it's like, I'm glad you're shutting up because I'm tired of hearing your complaints. But um, before that, more than a woman by the Bee Gees. I want to thank you, Tara, for coming. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, anytime you want to come back, maybe we can put together a different uh, set of songs. We could talk about that. Thank you. I will read some stuff. You will read some stuff. But it has been a stone groove. Thank you so much for coming by. Um, Tara Romano, uh, militant feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you for coming by. Uh, This is D-Sides, Orphans, and Oddities. And I'll play you out with some stuff that I had programmed for next week, but it's um, um, there's always more of this craziness that I could uh, program for you. So, have a good evening.
7 FM WHUPL show where we 